We're back. Hello and welcome to Series 5 of the Guns on Pegs podcast. Uh, in case this is your first time, my name is George Brown and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs and the Game Card. And my co-host is Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Say hello, Chris. Hello, everyone. This is good to be back, isn't it, George? It's nice. It's been a while since we've done a proper episode. It feels good to be back. Yeah, no, it is good. It's good. It had a had um, a busy time planning that wedding and doing all that jazz, which, do you know what occurred to me? Um, that wedding that I've just met, the party that I just managed to have, you know, that was supposed to be after episode two when we first ever started this thing. <laughs> episode two. <laughs> this is now episode 40-something. Uh, and that's how long ago that thing was supposed to happen. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's been a busy old time, hasn't it? Summer's often busy and you know, I've had an amazing fishing trip and you had a few days off after your wedding. But anyway, it, we're all back to normal now. We're back at our desks and we've got, uh, you know, another series more or less lined up and ready to rock. Getting revved up for this interesting season ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so let's, without further ado, Chris, um, let's introduce our guest who's joining us for the first episode of the series. So our guest today has been there and done that. I think that's the way I've sort of summarised it. It's likely you've actually met him. You, you might have come across him on your travels as a passionate game shot or probably at a charity clay event. Um, he started out in agriculture, then with the National Trust, then Countryside Commission Scotland, then did some work with the GWCT before teaching at Sparschalt and creating the th- a three-year diploma in game and wildlife management. He then went on working at Penn Sport Shooting School in the 80s before a certain Imran Khan actually approached him to set up a shooting school to emulate the Jackie Stewart shooting school. That shooting school was Royal Berkshire shooting school. Well, it would become no less. Uh, And after selling a stake in 2010, it's now entirely owned by Purdy. Um, So he's got his feet up doing absolutely nothing now, haven't he? (laughs) Lies. (laughs) A very warm welcome to, some would call him the Silver Fox, I'll call him the Silver Fox, but uh, to Dylan Williams. Thank you very much, Chris, and uh, hello, George, as well. How are you? Uh, very, very good, and all the better for having you with us. Thank you, Dylan. Um, it's great to have you. I had to get the silver fox in there because you, in on that uh, Botham clay shoot the other day, you introed me in front of everyone there as someone off Love Island. Well, <laughs> and it was quite true. <laughs> May I say, I find, I'm finding this far more onerous and worrying than standing up in front of about 300 people on a charity shoot if I'm honest (laughs) Silver Fox just makes me think of gin it's my favorite gin so there you go the the original Silver Fox does actually have a a charity clay shoe that you've been involved with don't you Mm. yeah years ago (laughs) so no it's good to have you here thank you very much looking forward to a bit of catch-up and all of that that's a hell of a bit of that's a hell of a background yeah I've probably been one of the luckiest guys in our community and um if they say that if you enjoy every day at work, it's not really work, that probably applies to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure you've enjoyed every day, but I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, as they say, Chris, you've got to have the bad days to make the good days look better. But there are one or two that were challenging, but overall, very, very fortunate. Okay, so before we continue with the podcast, we've got a brand new feature for the next few episodes. Because it's summertime and because we love cooking and eating game, we've got Dan Cooper, who is head grill master at Weber, uh, to share some hot game barbecuing tips with us. Dan, welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. 
Head Grillmaster Dan. I'm loving the title. Go on, just give us a bit of a sneak preview into what Head Grillmaster life look like, looks like. Well, I've worked for Weber for 11 years, so a, a fair old length of time. It's um, it's a bit of a dream job, really. It's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and um, yeah, I still sometimes pinch myself thinking that I can um get paid to barbecue. So Dan, I understand that each episode you're going to be bringing us a. a a nice simple recipe that uh, George is essentially going to go and cook up after and come back and report about. <laughs> uh, but, but well, the listeners are going to go try uh, for themselves. So what's the first recipe you've you've got for us? Okay, well, this is brilliant because it's always, you know, my ambition to get people barbecuing. And I think barbecuing game is something that we have uh, an abundance of here. And it's really what we should be bringing into our diet so I'm really excited about this particular recipe because this predates me working at Weber and this oh, was cool. a, a little bit of a, a sort of happy accident so I I've a sh- I come from a chefing background okay and I was um, catering um, it was a very smart um, week uh, booking I had a, in a big country house near Evesham and it was for Cheltenham Gold Cup week yeah and um, <clears throat> it was um they requested carpaccio beef carpaccio is a uh, for the evening it was going to be the starter and um my butcher delivery came and there were no beef fillets on it and i was um you know it was wasn't the sort of thing i could just run out and get because when you're cooking for quite 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 a lot of people it was um the time wouldn't allow that anyway so i panicked a little bit and spoke to um some of the other staff at the house and it transpired that the the gamekeeper had some beef fillet in his freezer. So I went to go and have a look. Of course, it wasn't beef fillet. It was roe deer loins. But it ended up being the most amazing kind of happy accident, as it were, because we I ended up making a roe deer carpaccio, um, which uh, transpired to be, <laughs> I think, far more delicious. And the actual client came into the kitchen and was so full of gratification and said, this is the most amazing thing. The guests are all talking about the roe deer carpaccio. So... Very simply, you want to cook it over very, very, very hot coals. Um, I use lumpwood charcoal for this dish. So I would take the your roe deer fillets, um, put some aromats on them, maybe a little orange zest, some juniper, some salt, some pepper, um, and just let that soak into the meat a little bit, let it cure for a little bit. And then you want to put the the fillets directly over the coal and just sear them as hot as you can, as I said, um, until they're coloured all over. And it's one of those things that it kind of goes against what you'd usually do on a barbecue. Um, usually you want to cook things all the way through. You don't want it pink in the middle and cooked on the outside. But for this particular dish, we want to do just that. We want to sear it, sear it on the outside. We want to keep it really, really pink and almost raw in the center so once you've um, given them literally only about three or four minutes on that hot grill take them off and let them rest and you must let them rest um, until you know you can really let them go cold and then you slice the fillets down into little kind of one pound coin thickness um, little discs and then in between grease proof paper just gently beat them out with a steak hammer or a rolling pin and then I serve, put them onto a plate and serve them with some mustard cress, some water cress, a little bit of shaved pecorino cheese, some oh. uh, sour cream <laughs> with, with some chopped herbs and lemon zest in, <laughs> and just finish that with the best quality olive oil you can possibly find. And that will make, um, I think, anyone smile. 
I'm looking at Chris on the video, and I think he's actually dribbling. So I, I, I was I was staring at Dan, and then I thought I was going to look back to George and see him in his chef's hat with the tongs ready, just like <laughs> um, ready ready to go. For me, it's one of those very easy things to cook, but it also comes across as being really fancy when you serve it. And I love dishes like that because it's sort of it's really up there with its bold statement of what it is. It's that lovely, super rare, really thin um roe deer with the wonderful uh accompaniments that make it really zingy and tart and spicy as well so yeah it's a winner awesome and, i mean i i'm okay at cooking but i'm also quite adept at buggering things up so what's the pitfall to look out for is it overcooking it overcooking it 100 percent. this is about keeping and we don't usually say this but usually with the weber barbecue we always cook with the lid on this is it's almost so quick you don't need to do that so you put it straight onto the coals um you want to just be turning it every 30 seconds okay until it's just colored on the outside then remove it literally no more than that and use lovely fresh uh roe uh, roe deer fillets and um the the smaller the fillets the quicker it's going to take to cook um but this yeah this dish is this is absolutely delicious spot on roe deer sounds carpaccio. amazing yeah i'm gonna try and find some venison very soon gotta give that a go <laughs> um right so dan before we let you go um we also need to let everybody know about a competition that we're running with weber chris why don't you tell everybody what's up for grabs yeah, this is really exciting, this one, because I want to rig it. So um, uh, you can enter a competition to win one of um, Weber's Smokefire Stealth Pellet Barbecues. Um, Dan, I've gawped at the YouTube video on this thing. Can you just tell everyone who hasn't done what I've done about this, what this pellet barbecue is? Absolutely. And this is very exciting because this is the first I've... Um... I've heard of this as being given away in a, a competition like this. So it's, you know, it's a brilliant opportunity. And anyone out there who's looking to get their hands on one of these, you yeah, definitely enter because uh, pellet barbecues are the future in so many ways. It gives you the convenience of a gas barbecue, but the flavor of wood-fired cookery. So uh, a smoke fire is a pellet barbecue. It uses, um, uh, it uses wood pellets as the fuel, similar to biomass. Um, and it's very, very um, easily controlled. It's all about um, being able to cook at extremely low temperatures for those low and slow smoky cooks, but also the smoke fire can can grill at a searing 315 degrees, so it can do high temperature cooking as well. It's an all-in-one, um, does low, does hot and fast. It's just a brilliant device, and I've been I've got one of these at home, and I do all my low and slow cooks on it. It, I, so the when I, what amazed me is so you chuck the pellets in the back of this thing you set using the app the temperature you want to to cook at and then the the, the Weber barbecue will chuck in the right number of pellets to to regulate the temperature to cook what you want to the level you wanted at and then let you know when it's ready right it's an amazing bit of kit yeah it, that's that's exactly it so I mean there is a level of um it's just ridiculous uh, <laughs> using using the app it has the guided grilling sequence so it show you how to prepare the food you don't have to use that feature but it's very useful if you're doing something let's say like a whole big four rib or something on on the on there um i mean i've been cooking for barbecuing for like 15 years and so i still don't know exactly what the center temperature of a large roasting joint might be 
So um, telling you when to take it off, how long to rest it for, how to carve it, it really does um, take you step by step through your through your cooks. That's so good. Right, so all you've got to do to enter the competition is head over to the Guns on Pegs Facebook page or the Instagram account, scroll down till you find the relevant post and follow the instructions. Word of warning, the competition closes on the 28th of July, so you will not have long to enter the competition after this podcast goes out, but it's definitely worth a go. They are seriously cool pieces of kit. Dan, we've taken up enough of your time. Thanks very much for coming along and um, we'll speak to you next time. Cheers, well, thank Dan. you very much. Thank you very much for having me and happy grilling, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, your favourite segment? It is my favourite segment. Let's get straight on with it. Dylan, what's that you're drinking? Well, it's, uh, it's a drink that's got a bit of a history to it and it's uh, my favourite whiskey from Isla called Bruick Laddie. The one I got today is the Classic Laddie. And the interesting story around it is many years ago, I was fortunate to be staying on an estate not too far from Ballater. And I was invited down uh, by a very, very kind gentleman to have a go at trying the McNabb. And where we were staying, which was about 13 miles off the main road, the previous night was a thunderstorm that was biblical. And when I awoke at about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to go down to uh, Pitlochry, uh, my wife decided she wanted to come with me for some bizarre reason. <laughs> and uh, we drove down, and as we were going up over Glenshee, looking at the burn coming down to the D, it was literally the colour of coffee. And I said, this is going to be the biggest waste of the day we've <laughs> ever done. Anyway, we arrived, and a delightful guy looking after me was a charming man called Sandy Watson, who's sadly no longer with us. And we met on a fishing hut on the River Gary. And we looked at the river and he did an inimitable Highland style, a little shake of the head. But I thought, well, we'll give it a go. And uh, I was also fortunate that Ali Gowans, who many may know created the Ali Shrimp, had decided to come along as well. And after two or three casts, which looked as though I was using a broom, um, he suggested a few tips and said, I'd cast a bit down here. And four casts later, we had a 13-pound salmon on the bank at about 8.30. <laughs> so my wife then proceeded to bring out a miniature of 10-year-old Bruick Laddie. <clears throat> she said, Lovely. you can get one of these after every time you get something. So then we rushed <laughs> off to the next door state, was at Dalmain. Del By 11.30, we had the stag. And then I almost wanted a bottle of whiskey because <laughs> I was so nervous I was going to miss the grouse, having been... Sh- Lucky enough to go walked up Grouchington since I was 10. We walked and we walked and we walked. And having shot first a single grouse, realizing that I had to have a brace to constitute a full McNabb, at about four o'clock, two got up and we nailed one. And then the other one was picked about 40 yards further away. And I must say that 20-year-old Bruick Laddie miniature was the best drink in the world that day. Um, <laughs> so it was very... Poignant and also very enjoyable. Every time I drink a Bruick Laddie, it reminds me of those beautiful hills uh, on the A9 uh, where I was at Down the Main on the River Gary. So hence why that's my drink today. Brilliant. What I, a I, wonderful story. I love yeah, that. Yeah, love it. I mean, yeah. I would all make sure I always had a bottle of that in the house to make sure, you know, for when, when you do. <laughs> for when you have one of those slightly rough days at work, you can just settle into an armchair with that. I have persuaded many people that at various times in the year, it is actually on prescription. Um, so I've got a constant supply here. It's um, amazing how a, how a drink brings back a memory so quickly, isn't it? A taste. 
I, I, yeah. I've got that with certain drinks, and that's mm. awesome to have that story. I think I need to speak to your doctor, Dylan, to get <laughs> one of these prescriptions myself. I think you've, you already have. You've taken it into your own hands, though, George. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, okay, Chris, what have you got today? Well, this is actually what have we got, I think, because we've been treated, and I know you've been begging to be treated on this pod for ages for people to send us drinks. It started working. <laughs> it's only taken 40 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so... I and you, and I, I think we can sort of share our own thoughts on this in a second, because I've just had a sip of this. So so some of you may know Tim Maddams. Dylan, you'll know Tim. Very well, yeah. Episode three. So episode three, yeah, uh, of, of our first ever series on the pod, Tim was was a guest, and we had a, we had a great fun time. So Tim's been plotting and scheming now that he's up in the depths of Scotland, uh, and he's come up with this drink called Elderberry Porth. Now, Porth is the Cornish term for port, I understand. Uh, essentially, it's a port. Um, and so just cutting straight into it, it's incredible. I'm loving this. It is really good. <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect. But yeah, like you say, it's it's a fortified wine with elderberry. So it's it's very similar to port. But there's something else going on. There's sort of a depth of flavor that I think must be coming from the elderberries. Um, and it is absolutely fantastic. The wine that's originally made from is a West Country wine that they then fortify. It's got Cornish brandy and then and yeah. then the elderberries. Yeah, but it but it's so smooth. I thought it was going to be something quite different, and it's just absolutely mega. Can I just comment, gentlemen, that for the for the listeners, they may not know that we're actually on Zoom as well when we're doing this recording, and both of them, having enjoyed that drink, now have emulated my hair color, so it must be fairly <laughs> potent. <laughs> so so anyway elderberry porth uh and thank you to tim so it didn't stop there though this is why so tim messaged us and he was like guys got something for the pod i'll send you a bottle of course but do you want to give away a bottle of the elderberry porth to the to the best bit of correspondence that you get in so we wrote back and thought oh brilliant cheers tim S- send them down and we we came up with a twist on that which is the guest so dylan you will choose after the bit, after we've gone through today's correspondence. You've got to choose what you think is your favourite bit of correspondence, and that person will get a bottle of the elderberry porth. Cool. Well, so I suppose we probably we'd probably get better get on with the correspondence, hadn't we, Chris? We should. So, Dylan, the first bit that we always do is uh, whose bird is it anyway? And this is the segment where we ask our listeners to send in their shooting dilemmas and queries and quandaries and we between us try and resolve them this episode's whose bird is it anyway submission comes from somebody i've decided to call reginald and it's quite an interesting one i think reginald writes i have a game farm rearing circa ninety thousand pheasants partridge and mallard at this time of year i spend a great deal of time in the truck dragging a trailer loaded with quality game birds to shoots large and small all across the country and listening to the Guns on Pegs podcast makes the journeys pass quicker and helps to keep me awake. Brownie points. Yep. (laughs) I can't remember how many times I've heard each episode, but it must be several for each series. I'm delighted that a new series is being created. My dilemma is that I'm very, very fortunate in that I receive a few invitations to take part at some nice shoots, which I'm very grateful for. When possible, I accept but I also get invitations to shoot at some of the smaller shoots that I supply. I'm not after big bag days and prefer a good crack, but my dilemma is when I know how many birds the shoot has released and what the expected returns are likely to be. If I go and shoot well, I could inadvertently shoot a high percentage of the season's birds, and I could find this embarrassing and possibly detrimental to business. So, 
should I accept the generous invitations from all the shoots, regardless of size, or should I thank them, but say I'll have to decline the invitation and make up some lame excuse? Other than the fact that you're just too good to shoot at your shoot. <laughs> mm. I think I've met Reginald. <laughs> really? <laughs> Did he tell you, I'm Reginald, I'm too good for your shoot? Uh, yeah. Um, I think that uh, Reginald has a very interesting dilemma. It's not really a problem. And I think if I ran the shoot, I would look forward to presenting him with a 410 and seeing how his head got smaller. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't believe a game farmer is as as messages in with a dilemma at this time of year when of all the dilemmas a game farmer is having right now that is not one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean when I first started reading this email when it came in I thought his dilemma was definitely going to be how much should I put my prices up by. <laughs> I wonder if Reginald is one of the reputed uh game farmers that um somehow remarkably have been receiving 25 pound a pult if he is then uh, he can buy his own days this year and he doesn't need to accept these invites <laughs> but i mean i think it's it's a it's a selectivity thing right you know any shoot you go on you shoot you try your level best to shoot you know broadly your share of the expected bag and if you think that that means that you uh, you know there's a danger that you might have shot your share after the end of the first drive that means you you know, rein it in a bit and maybe only take half a dozen cartridges with you for that drive. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, you must have this problem. So when you stand at, <laughs> when when you stand on these shoots and, you, and you're shooting extremely well, what do you do? I dance a jig because it's such a rare <laughs> thing that happens. <laughs> and everyone hears me squealing because I'm so excited. So let's try and bring this back to reality a little bit. On a more serious note, if you are having a good streak and you're on a smaller syndicate day, surely the answer is just make note be conservative like there's there's no two ways about this you don't carry on right yeah i think if you're shooting that many birds relative to your neighboring guns where they're not lifting their guns to them or they're being abstemious on their yeah. peg if you can't sense that yeah it's highly unlikely that you'll be invited again uh, yeah. and it's highly likely that he'll lose the contract anyway yeah, exactly. And so that, that that's really good advice because this is sort of shooting etiquette that's that you it's it almost comes with with experience. You're told about it when you start shooting, aren't you? But then it takes quite a bit of experience to sort of adapt and understand the situation and the little cues to look out for. But I do think also, and I'm very conscious that I've been very very blessed that over the last thirty odd years of teaching people, many people do go on their first day shooting, and it doesn't take long over. A cup of coffee or chatting to the pickers up or the, the the beaters before they leave in the morning and just say oh you know it's my first time i've not been here before you know could you give me an indication roughly what the bag will be today or you know have i got enough cartridges you can ask very elegant questions without being so crass as to say well how many are we going to kill today you don't need to do that you've been invited yeah. on a day's shooting yeah, not yeah. a day's killing exactly that's a exactly. very good phrase yeah like that a lot um but going back to you know this chap reckons he's quite good at shooting i thought it might be a good moment to bring up a stat from this year's game shooting census which we've recently done the analysis on so dylan i think this will be of interest to you as well so we asked the question uh, how would you describe your skill as a game shot and we gave people the options of very poor, poor, average, good, and very good. So I think before we 
reveal the statistic, I'm going to ask both of you to rate yourselves on that scale. <laughs> and I'll do it after you guys as well. It's a little bit different doing it on a survey anonymously on your own, isn't it, than doing it on a podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. After had a, having had three beers and thinking you can walk on water. Uh, honestly, I, I'd say that because of the nature of what we do, I've been lucky enough to be out. I've done a bunch of different things. I'd put myself, I'd, I, I wouldn't say I was average. I'd say I was a bit above it because of that. And I'd say I was good. I'm not very good. I've been on shoots where I've been made to feel absolutely awful. And obviously we all have our bad days, but I've seen other people and I'm like, wow, 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 wow. Okay, that, that puts everything in perspective. And it really depends on the types of places you go to. And, and, 100%. 100%. And, and, the, and the people you shoot with. However, to, to, to justify my decision of going for the good category a little bit more, when I shoot on some of these high bird shoots with some amazing high bird shots, you, you see that that's when I get made to feel awful about my quality of shooting. But the variation, I think, is the key. So if you can go to a, a little sort of hedge hopping partridge shoot and then you can go to this, that and the other and shoot well on all of those, that I think is the real key test. Uh, and variation is something that I definitely enjoy rather than sort of one form of shooting, which I know a lot of people kind of do do. Mm, interesting. Dylan? I just say I'm always a happy shot. I don't care where I am. I just, I don't care if I stand in a grouse butt and I just see and hear grouse. And if I see my neighbor shooting well, that gives me as much pleasure. I think now, more recently, I'm doing, I enjoy my teaching very much, having done it for so long. And I'm also being asked to go and stand with people in the field. And I get as much enjoyment out of helping a client shoot a bird that he or she is incredibly proud of because then you're sharing that experience and you can regale it for many years to come. But uh, yeah, I probably get as much enjoyment out of somebody else shooting a good bird as I would try to do myself. Are you trying to get away with not answering the question? No, no, no. it sounds like you're standing for leader of the Conservative Party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that would be an interesting task. Uh, I would say uh, what... It's for other people to say. I would say I'm, I'm mediocre. I've been on shoots. I went to a renowned shoot in the West Country four or five years ago. I was very kindly invited by a very kind friend who's known me for many years. And I unquestionably shot the worst I've ever shot in my life. And the problem is I can remember a, a very good friend of mine who used to work with McLaren. And he was responsible for the tuning of the engines. And he always used to say, they always expect me to drive at 150 miles an hour and be absolutely brilliant. He said, my job is to make sure the driver goes quickly. And the only excuse I could use is my job is to make other people shoot well because I've categorically <laughs> proven I could not. How, how many of your paying clients from a tuition point of view just expect you to be a very good shot? You know what, Chris? I don't shoot a lot. So therefore, when I do get the chance to do it, I thoroughly enjoy it. But I think that it's what you bring to a shoot. So I think I'd rather have a situation that if you go to a shoot that you're there because you can have a laugh, you wind people yeah. up and you're trying to have a giggle rather than, God, that guy can shoot nine out of 10 every time. Um, yeah. But what does he actually bring to the wider group of beaters, keepers and everything else? Very true. Very yeah. true. That is, can I put it on record? That is the most important part, not the shooting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go on, George, reveal the stats. Well, I think I might have to revise it downwards hearing that Dylan's an average shot. I was going to say, I think I'm an average shot. I think I'm, and, and I would say that probably I'm an average shot on a good day. I'm certainly capable of being a very poor shot. There, you know, there are days when I shoot quite well 
there are days when I, the wheels just completely fall off and nothing seems to work. Interestingly, they often coincide with um, having had a bit too much to drink the night before. And 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 none of those days are sort of affected in your memory by actually how well you shot at all. No, I mean some of them I don't remember terribly well. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, you know, it's always about having a nice day out, and um, you know, you. Ne- I try not to uh, allow how well I shoot affect how much I enjoy a day. The only time when I can really remember. It, you know, being genuinely sort of worried about how well I was going to shoot was the first time I ever went on a shoot day as part of Guns on Pegs because I kind of felt a certain pressure like, oh, this dude's from Guns on Pegs. He's probably pretty good. And then I just, yeah, I couldn't hit a thing all day, really. It was quite embarrassing. What I would say, George, is I think when anyone's invited to a shoot, it is a privilege. Absolutely. And it constantly amazes me how many people get invited on remarkable days sport. and. If you were going to be going skiing or you were going to be, you know, you wanted to be a good golfer, and people have historically always said I'm biased, but putting in a bit of time to have lessons will repay dividends. And your host, I'm absolutely convinced, will appreciate that you shoot better or you've made the effort. And when you look at people like Nadal and Federer and, you know, Tiger, they have coaches every day. And they're as good as you'll ever get in the world. And they still feel they need to get better. So I think if people feel that they could shoot better, there is the opportunity throughout the United Kingdom to go to some really good shooting schools to actually have the chance to get a little bit better. Absolutely. So I did just want to share the uh, the statistics on this because I think that it probably feeds into what you were just saying as well. So long story short, 96% of guns rate themselves as average or better. Which is impossible. <laughs> so only f- only 4% say that they're poor or very poor. Yeah, which is statistically impossible. <laughs> so everyone <laughs> thinks they're better than they are. It yeah. demonstrates that the individuals that support guns on pegs are outstanding guns. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the game shooting census is actually across all organisations. So we could filter it to respondents who came from Guns on Pegs to see to see how <laughs> the quality of shot based on who you're a member of affects. <laughs> uh, that would be interesting. I think I do think there's a serious point here as well, which uh, and it, it comes back to to what Dylan was saying, which is that you know we do have to be realistic about our abilities. You know, I'm not going to be signing up for any high bird shoots anytime soon because I know that I'll be out of my depth. And, uh, you know, I think that if, if, you know, somehow I managed to get an invitation to go and do it, then I would be pretty quickly signing up to spend a lot of time on a tower at somewhere like RBSS or something like that. Do what I do, George, on the high bird shoots and just take the side by side and shoot the low ones out the side. Well, yeah, but I think even the low ones would probably be stretching my abilities. <laughs> but that's the thing. The low ones are as good as any good bird on any normal shoot. And so yeah. therefore I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> and, and so the other thing that we asked in the census this year was how when people most recently had a, whether people had a shooting lesson in the last 12 months. And that was a bit of an eye opener as well. Well, what do, you, what do you reckon, Dylan? What percentage of the shooting community do you reckon have had a shooting lesson in the last 12 months? Who have responded? Who have responded. So, yes, that does make the stat probably higher than... Yeah. Um, I would think 50%. Hmm. If, if, if. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, three quarters of respondents haven't had a shooting lesson in the last year. 
Which isn't to say they've not been to the clay ground and practiced. And, and we've had the travails of COVID and, you know, they may not have even been shooting last year. So therefore, why would you have a lesson if you're not going shooting? But we've asked this question before and the stat rarely varies. So basically three quarters of even the keen shots don't have lessons. But then again, I've seen individuals, I have to say, who I've watched in the field, they've never ever had a lesson in their life and they are truly remarkable shots. So there are people out there that do yeah. not need lessons. Yeah. Um, however, there are many others that I do believe would benefit yeah, I mean, completely unrelated, but, you know, the natural talent thing. I don't know if you've seen Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams on the telly recently. And that, that this young Afghan kid who's never had a cricket coaching lesson in his life turns up and bowls absolute lightning. It's amazing. <laughs> I've got to watch that. Yeah, it's remarkable. <laughs> Great program. Great program. Well, look, so 25% have, uh, have only 25% have had a lesson, but 50% even say or admit to being average, poor, or very poor. So we know there's a disconnect there. I would think, Chris, that Mr. Fennick and Roddy Richmond Watson and John Hegren and Adam down at Ian Coley's and Purdy's will be delighted with that news. Yeah. What I an mean, opportunity. There's, there's, there's fair, fair target market there, isn't mm, there? Yeah, big untapped <laughs> <Marvelous>. market. Marvellous. <laughs> Right, I think we'd better move on. Uh, we could talk about that all day, though, couldn't we? Chris, have we got an unpopular opinion? We do. It comes from someone that we'll, we'll call Clive. He writes, Dear gentlemen of the pod, first, cracking work to getting to a fifth series of the Guns on Pegs podcast. It truly is a great listen and definitely most look forward to podcast. Um, so all these people giving us <laughs> nice They're learning, words. aren't they? They're learning. This is how you get garters straight away. Uh, anyway, he says, I have an unpopular opinion for you to stick in your me metaphorical pipe and smoke. Uh, like any good gun, I eat what I shoot. I take pride in preparing and cooking birds and demonstrating to my two young daughters that game shooting is not only a hobby, but a harvest of high quality, ethical and tasty food. So I always take a couple of brace in the feather. But in recent years, and generally on larger shoots, the default has often been shrink-wrapped, oven-ready birds provided at the close of the day. This is one step too far from the reality, as far as I'm concerned, and perpetuates the conceptual gap between food and harvest. Possibly not quite to the levels of children thinking that meat is made in Tesco, but it definitely allows a mental separation between trigger pull and pot. That is the exact opposite of how we should all approach a day out in the field. Nobody is going to doubt the convenience of getting these birds into a pot. But if we wanted convenience, we'd go to the supermarket. Hope that generates a bit of discussion. I think it will. So Clive, as we've named him, Dylan here has quite an important role with British Game Assurance. Uh, so I'm going straight to you, Dylan. <laughs> what do you think of Clive's opinion? Well, I suppose if I reflect when I started shooting... I can remember at the age of nine, my father would come back when I was desperate to go out shooting. And he'd come and after he'd been duck flighting and he'd sit on the end of the bed and say that they were coming in like wine bottles. And I was as a nine-year-old thinking, this is the most amazing thing. And then I was so lucky. He was the agricultural advisor and the head of the agricultural college in Mid Wales. So therefore a bottle of whiskey seemed to get him access to every piece of agricultural land in the whole of Mid Wales. <laughs> and I spent probably every Wednesday evening and every Saturday and Saturday night and Friday night, rough shooting throughout Mid Wales. I was taught we respect everything that we shoot. And therefore, uh, my father had, he rented two grouse moors again for bottles of whiskey. And if you 
reflect on the fact when he took the grouse moors in 1952, he had to stop shooting with his old headmaster. They were using Llewellyn red setters because they'd shot 40 brace and they couldn't carry any more. And that was at midday. That was in Mid Wales in 1952. Wow. And my father used to invite people and say, I'd like to, initially, I'd like to invite you to come for a walk up to go grouse shooting. In the end, he used, and he used to say, I'd like to invite you to come with me and my sons. I had the two brothers. And it used to be, we'd get a good bag. But then it developed into, if you'd like to come and shoot with us, if we see a grouse, it'll be a great day. If we shoot a grouse, it'll be a red letter day. And that is adjacent to Lake Burnley. But everything we shot, we dressed and prepared. However, in relation to Clive, I'm also conscious that in this day and age, not everybody has cellars and staff. And if you're shooting in September and you're going to go back into central London where refuse collection is every two weeks, you're going to have a major problem. And Mm. in the same vein, I can't remember ever going to a butcher and receiving a leg of lamb with the wool still on it. I see nothing wrong in the most innovative shoots creating game in a manner that it'll broaden the audience that wants to consume it. And it may be that they don't necessarily want to eat that uh, breast of game in a vacuum pack, but they can give it to somebody else to enjoy it who may never have enjoyed game in the past. And it is our responsibility to endeavor to get as many people to shoot game because it begs the question, why are we going shooting? Well, because we want to eat what we shoot. Yeah. yeah, And I think it comes back to that initial thing that my father always used to say, it's respect. Yeah, If you cannot, it doesn't matter how you consume it or how you get presented it, but you have to go and consume it. And I don't see that there's anything wrong in that. And I think that we've got 5,000 gamekeepers in the UK that do the most remarkable job. And ultimately, notwithstanding they provide great sport, they are and should be considered a, a producers of food. That's what they're doing. And notwithstanding other things, I think that we should consider calling them wildlife rangers or countryside rangers rather than keepers, if it's the narrative. But in answer to Clive, if if the estate presented with that, if you want to take home game home in the in the feather, I can't see any problems with that at all. But similarly, I do believe the estates should present the ability for you to take it home in a process form. You know, you look at Betus, what they're doing up there, Gwyn and Anne and Will and Amy. It's incredible how they present it. I went and shot grouse at, at Westerdale Rosedale, and we had vacuum-packed young breasts of grouse. It was quite outstanding. And it just shows that they've had the respect of the game to present it to you in the best possible manner. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I do think the ability to dress your prepare and dress your own game is something that everybody should be able to do. It's a really useful skill to have, and it teaches you a lot of stuff, you know, you can go to the supermarket and buy some chicken breasts in a pack. Or if you want to save a bit of money, you can go and buy a whole chicken and, you know, break it down yourself. And if you've learned how to do that with a game bird, then doing it on a chicken is super easy. George, when I was a boy, if we shot grouse, it was almost analytical. I used to actually count every piece of grit in the gizzard of a grouse because I knew that was so important to the population of the grouse. You know, we were lucky to have walked up English partridges in parts of Wales and obviously shooting wild mallard and teal and it was boys own stuff really but everything was dressed every single thing and i have no objection to people dressing game themselves but i do think in this modern day we live 
having it presented for you in an easier format. There's nothing wrong in that. I don't reckon Clive's opinion is that unpopular in that I do think it's important that wherever possible we connect all the way through. But I think that the choice on a shoot is vital, which kind of backs up what you, you've both been saying. Because you, as you're, you're absolutely right, again, in the census, I forget the stat, but I think about 25%, George, of people live in an urban area. Yeah. And I'm not saying that urban area means you can't breast out a pheasant because, I, I mean, we once did it outside the office on German Street when our office used to be there. We, 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 were, we, were, we were dressing grouse on the street just to see sort of what reaction we got and doing them all after a day. You know, I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's definitely more difficult. You know, even walking up a street in London with guns over your shoulder in tweed is not something that you necessarily feel comfortable doing. So I think a choice is important. But as as you pointed out, Dylan, you'll never not get the chance of taking uh, some birds in the feather on a shoe. No. You just might not get the chance of ready, you know, ready dressed game. But I think it's so important that the shoots give a choice here. Interestingly, actually, we've got, again, because it's census time of the year, we've got all these stats just out. This 29% of people would always prefer to take birds in the feather, irrespective of the choice. 29%. Yeah, so nearly a third of people think exactly like Clive here. But 60-odd percent, 61% want it the other way. It's actually almost perfectly split. 32% want a choice, depending on situation, and and 27% only wanted dressed game so always dress for them uh 10% went as as far as to say they would prefer breast fillets or like a prepared game meal like a uh, sausages and things like that sometimes when you get adventurous options from shoots which again is really nice and I, I i do love it when again shoots offer that because as you also said dylan that's the perfect thing to give to someone that doesn't shoot Definitely. Because you're just not really going to do that at home as often. That's a really interesting conversation, that. And just very quickly, I want to pick up on something that Chris said about doing pheasants in German Street. I once had a a visit from um, Hammersmith and Fulham Council because I'd got home late one Saturday night with a brace of pheasants. And I lived in one of those blocks of flats that have the the balconies round the, the outside of the floor. So you come out of the lift and you go around the outside of the building and then to your front door rather than the internal corridor. And I hung this brace of pheasants outside my front door. And at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, Hammersmith and Fulham Council came to pay me a visit and said, we've had a report of dead animals hanging outside your front door. And I looked at the pheasants and I looked at the people from Hammersmith and City, Hammersmith and Fulham Council and said, yes. (laughs) Anyway, I had to deal with those quite quickly after that. Yeah. Did they know what they were? Uh, I think they might have been able to work it out, but... (laughs) The people in the last block I lived in in Pimlico got home really late. We were shooting in like north of England. I got back to London at probably about 11 p.m. And I left all the birds on the roof of the car in the underground car park. And I got a call at like half 12 at night. So only about an hour and a half after I pulled up. But I was asleep. And it was like, you've got some dead birds on the roof of your car, mate. And I was like, yeah, I know. I put them there. And he's, <laughs> he just he couldn't get his head around this. And he's like, you can't do that. I was like, why not? And he's like, foxes and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, don't worry, I'll sort them out as well. But <laughs> what may be interesting for you guys is that my daughter, Jazzy, uh, she's at Oxford Brooks and she's always been keen on tennis, was made tennis captain. And she was asked to organize a social event. And they said, oh, 20 or 30 people will come. And she said, I want to do a barbecue with just game, only game. And she told everyone that's what it was going to be. And she spoke to the guys at Exmoor Game and they sent up process game. 
and 160 turned up. Wow. Which, interestingly, some of them were vegans and had no Hmm. problem eating the game. Really? It's the methodology of commercial meat production that many of them were opposed to, not game per se. You know, these are 19 to 22-year-olds that 160 of them came to a game barbecue in the middle of Oxford. Yeah, my next-door neighbours are vegan and they've got no issue with me shooting stuff if I eat it but they just don't eat meat themselves, but they understand. And actually one of them was even talking about, you know, understand stalking, interested in that sort of thing. Because, you know, if if there's one meat, the last meat standing in this country, if ever that became an issue would be venison. Yeah, we we actually did a similar thing at our wedding party recently. We we, we only served sort of rogue meats, as it were. It was game and variations of it, purely almost (laughs) taking my own wedding opportunity to to, to make a point to people. Uh, But it went down so well. There was people that had never eaten game in their life. And just some of the comments, it was Kai from Game and Flames. It was seriously good. Everyone listening on this podcast probably enjoys shooting. And I can argue most of the positive aspects of game management and the associated work that everyone does in it the minute we don't eat game is the probably the time i'd be selling my guns yeah yeah. we don't eat it i'm afraid to say that's it yeah well i mean it sounds like jazzy probably would qualify as a shooting hero for that i think Um, she would think she would actually i mean we're getting good at this chris she definitely she definitely qualify as a party hero i can tell you that <laughs> but introducing 160 people to game goes in the shooting hero category i, I think yeah but uh, we've got another shooting hero to talk about this week chris we do um so sean has mess has, has written in he's nominated this episode shooting hero and like with all of these i'm sure his story is going to sound familiar to many people listening so he says my friend mark wood and i decided last year to book a hotel well in advance so we could attend the game fair this year Woody has done well for himself, building up a joinery and property business over the past 15 years. I introduced him to shooting 10 years ago and not one to dip his toe into new hobbies. He he donned a frog suit and dived headfirst into this wonderful sport of ours. Although we shoot at our smallish DIY syndicate, Woody often takes days at some lovely and well-known shoots around us in North Yorkshire. He will quite often ask if I would like to load for him. I found out early on that loading quite often meant that I shoot a couple of drives too. On several occasions, I arrived at a day to find out he has bought me my own peg. This will be the first time Woody has attended the game fair and the first time for me in probably 25 years. So the reason for this email is that I want Woody to enjoy the weekend properly and the best way to do this is hopefully get some tickets for the Guns on Pegs podcast party so I can thank him for the shooting he's given me over the years. Coincidentally, the first time I came across your podcast was last year on the run-up to the game fair when you broadcast about the horse. What's that you're drinking? I'm on Tanqueray Gin and Fever Tree as I write this, if you're asking. (laughs) I would love to take Woody to a money can't buy event at the game fair to thank him for all the great days he's taken me on over the last few seasons. What, What a hero to... To, to you know to have as a mate it's just going to buy you days and you rock up and you don't know you're even going to be shooting <laughs> it's amazing isn't it i mean presumably then how does he if he turns up and he doesn't know he's got a peg has he got his gun well he says that he, he occasionally gets a, a you know asked a, he'll, he'll get given the he, gun he says, for bring, a drive bring your gun two. yeah 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 my dad used to do that to me when i was younger it was like the best thing in the world when <laughs> we were loading for him <laughs> what i really like about this one is it's kind of a two-way relationship right Some of the ones we've had before is like, my dad introduced me to shooting, so he's my shooting hero. This is actually Sean who did the introduction in the first place. 
and now Woody is kind of paying it back with the occasional peg here and there or the occasional drive on some of these nice shoots. I think that's really nice that it's worked in both directions. So you could almost argue that they're both shooting heroes in that regard. Well, they're both going to get themselves a pair of garters. Yes. And they can definitely have an invite to the party. I'm sure they'll be good value. And and uh, maybe Woody can buy us a drink if, he's, if he buys Sean a, a few pegs on day shooting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, the joinery and property refurbishment business. So it's not Mark Wood, the England cricketer. <laughs> Unfortunately for you, no. <laughs> be fun if it was, though. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so, yeah, uh, really, really good message, Sean. Thank you. And look forward to meeting you in, well, very soon. <laughs> yeah. A few days from now. Um. Dylan, you're going to be at the game fair. I am indeed. Yeah. Wait, are you going to come to the party? Would you uh, like to come? You're on the Saturday night, aren't you? Yeah. Well, given that I'm about 103, I tend to get a bit weary. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, um, I'm definitely there for the Friday and the Saturday, and um, I will definitely come around and see you guys, and uh, no doubt have a drink with you when we're there. So we're we're doing a live podcast at 5 p.m. on the Saturday. A whole load of listener correspondence, people chipping in. It's going to be. A- a nightmare to control but it should be a good laugh i think your i think your last party was a bit of a nightmare to control wasn't it <laughs> I, we stopped trying I, I i was on the phone to the security 10 minutes before this podcast so we're okay <laughs> um, but i mean just on the live podcast i mean the other thing that we're going to do is we've been asking for people to tell their stories and their confessions and quandaries and queries and that kind of thing and for the live recording we're going to kind of flip it around chris and i are going to share uh, a story or two and see if we can get some advice from the audience this time. And so, so that uh, you, I don't think we could be the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. I mean, we've proven that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it'd be quite fun to do that. And people can tell us where we've gone wrong. Sounds very entertaining. Very entertaining. And, and then pass the microphone around for people to have their own say, which I'm looking forward to. But, but talking of what's that you're drinking. So we alluded to it earlier. You, you may remember uh, in our short intro episode before this series, we asked for encouragement for Bethy Naylor Davis, who is the jockey of the Shetland Pony, named after the podcast, uh, so that the pony is called What's That You're Drinking? And we asked her for encouragement because she's trying to achieve her maiden win in the Shetland Pony Grand National. So off the back of that, we received an email from a very famous and shall rename, remain anonymous racing yard in Newmarket. They're offering to invite Bethy and her father, Tom, to have a look round and look round the, the yard and watch the horses on the gallops. Well, since that short intro, I've got some news. She's only gone and done it. <laughs> She's had her maiden win. She's done it in, in advance of the game fair, which was we were really going to be hoping was her maiden win. But I'm so pleased for Bethy. Uh, and obviously, what's that you're drinking? Cracking horse. So they, she, she had a win at, uh, at Barbary Horse Trials the other day. So she's going to be arriving at the game fair as, as already a winner. So the famous racing yard in Newmarket, thank you. The intro for the two of you is coming right up by email. <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, I love that this story is run and run and run as well. I mean, it, just it, like just like what's that you're drinking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited for it. And um, you know, we just have to hope. I mean, the only slight disappointment is presumably that means the odds have shortened for the game fair. Yeah. Our, our sort of uh, brief intro as a as a sort of part time bookies has got to end now, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, very famous racing yard, literally top notch, epic. Uh, that's going to be a hell of an experience for. Her. I'm really pleased about that. So thank you to that person who who contacted us. Yes, 
It's what makes it all go round, doesn't it? All this listener correspondence. It's <laughs> uh, fantastic. And on that note, so Woody, Sean, Clive, Reginald and you, Dylan, are now members of the most noble order of the garters and will shortly be in receipt of a set of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting stock garters. And of course, invitations to the Guns on Pegs party at the game fair if you're going to be there. Uh, and an invitation to join us for the live recording. That live recording invitation goes out to everyone. Uh, it's five o'clock on the Guns on Peg stand. Just turn up and come and support us. It'd be really fun. On Saturday the 30th. Saturday yeah. the 30th at the Game Fair. It's like the Oscars, boys. <laughs> <laughs> if you want a set of the most desirable garters in shooting, send us your shooting confessions, quandaries or queries, your unpopular opinions or your shooting heroes to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Also, if you're after a pair of tickets uh, for the party, drop us an email and let us know why you think you deserve a pair. Just on garters, I think we need to... I, I, I need an apology, right? <laughs> I, I, I've got to make an apology to those that haven't had their garters yet. So the Shooting Sock Company, which is quite a well-known company in our world, produces amazing shooting socks. They produce us our own mix of colours, which no one else can have, which is the podcast garter colour. The manufacturer had a bit of an issue with one of the colours, so we had to get a new version, which I've got on my desk here. It looks really smart. I couldn't tell the difference. So I was like, just crack on, please get them over. Uh, anyway, they're supposed to be arriving, and I promise I'll, I'll go back to uh, sitting on the sofa, doing labelling, boxing, all that sort of stuff, and I'll get them out. <laughs> Supply chain issues. I thought, you, I thought you knitted them by hand, actually, Chris. That's what I, I know. always thought. <laughs> it's hard enough just trying to package them, Dylan. I'm really glad I don't. <laughs> <laughs> right finishing all of that correspondence we've got to give away the bottle of elderberry porth from tim adams who is uh, kindly sent us the best bit of correspondence dylan woody sean clive reginald so just to recap for you <laughs> uh we had the game farmer who was reginald we have clive who what did clive do he was having and he was his unpopular opinion about about game and dress game and and then we had Sean, uh, whose mate is Woody, who's invite who invites him everywhere. I would like the bottle of amazing liquor produced by Mr. Madam to go to Clive on the proviso that he next season will take at least fifty pheasants, dress them at home, and give them to the local community. Love it. I I really love that idea. And then we'd like picture proof of him and his mates on the syndicate doing exactly that. Yeah. That's, that seems fair, doesn't it? And we'll and we'll post it on the Guns on Pegs social channels and the BGA social channels, and yeah, and he can be another hero as well. So brilliant! Oh, that's good. Good suggestion, Dylan. On we go. <laughs> right. So, Dylan, you've I mean, you've done a huge amount of stuff, but I think probably the thing that you're probably best known for is helping to set up what is now RBSS. So, when you go about starting something like that, you've got a, a blank sheet of paper and. 100 acres to play with how what what's the first thing that you think about how do you go about doing it uh there is absolutely no handbook number one <laughs> firstly it is now purdy at the royal berkshire shooting school and when we went there i was with a very dear friend who's no longer with us called edward watson who many listeners will remember edward was a great friend could and he drove me to distraction, absolute nightmare. But mm -hmm. sadly, he passed away a few years ago. And we went there with the, ostensibly, the imposity of youth. Um, we'd both worked at Nick Penn's and we knew that the shooting school was stunningly beautiful. Nothing to do with us. 
it was just a beautiful location. And by being closer to London than where we were historically, and I suppose it's hard work. I think that when people look at it now, um, they weren't aware probably of the fact that uh, I was living on site and Ed and Sarah were living just down the road. And we used to start giving lessons at eight o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't finish till six and lunch was literally on the hoof and we had Craig Scott there as well. And it was hard work, but I think we had a lot of fun and everything we did when we went there, it was a shooting ground and we established it as the Royal County of Berkshire. But the hardest part was getting to be the Royal County of Berkshire shooting school because I was adamant. I wanted people to learn and therefore we had to go through the Home Office and Company's House to have the name school, which involved creating all sorts of syllabuses on how we would do it, on the premise that if you go somewhere and you know more when you left than when you arrived, you've learned something. So that's a school. Gosh, so you can't just set up a playground and call it a shooting school. You have to go through this, jump through these hoops. I, I learned that if we were going to do it, we were going to do it properly. So we wanted to, IP is imperative. So we wanted to ensure that we could use the name. We wanted to use it in all our material. And I suppose we wanted to create a slightly new mold. And the, we then knew that we had to have three legs to the business, which was initially private tuition, company invitation days, and I got introduced to the idea of doing charity shoots. We'd done a couple of pen sport, but the first one we'd ever done at Royal Berkshire was in, I think, 1992, where I'd been to a dinner party previously, and I'd met Lady Barder, who was married to Sir Douglas Barder, who many people mm. will know from the Second World War. And I was chatting away, and she said, oh, we're desperate to raise some money. And I said, well, let's try and do a charity shoot. So we did a small event in 1992. I think there was about 50 or 60 guns. But she, unbeknown to me, had arranged for fly pasts of uh, two Spitfires going up and down the, the valley. And I thought, I like these days. These are <laughs> yeah. cool. Everyone was having a fun time. And what's not to like? And we raised more money than anyone expected on the day. And um, we then, we also worked incredibly hard at trying to engender ourselves to the locals because it is a challenge. It's the biggest challenge of running a shooting school is managing principally the noise aspects. Mm. And therefore, we rationalized the planning with the local authority to, we effectively gave up two months shooting a year by relinquishing Sundays and bank holidays. But as a trade, we then managed to secure the ability to host the larger charity shoots. And, you know, I suppose if there's one thing I'm quite proud of is that the team, and it is the team at Royal Berkshire, have helped. You know, we're just really facilitators, but we've raised probably 32 million quid for charity over the last 30 odd years, which is, you'd have to shake a tin for a long time outside Waitrose to earn, <laughs> to earn that sort yes, of money. Yes, and pick your branch. Royal Barch is, I don't know, for, it probably has the most contact with people through the charity days, doesn't it? I mean, that, that, it's, it's so well known for doing those. It is, and I think that it's so good to have a good story. You know, I think that when you think that some of the events we've done have been of very high profile people raising a lot of money they're doing it because they love shooting they're not there yeah. for the glory they just love shooting yeah but it's just nice to have a feel-good factor in our community that we have through the auspices of the shooting school and utilizing tiny little black clays have helped raise twenty thousand pounds for the village hall or as we did at guy ritchie's shoot raise a million pounds in a day for a hospice so i heard about this shoot is there anything you can... Sh this was quite a few years ago, wasn't it? And it was. 
I heard about, can you share any of the, did I hear about some auction items that you could, can any of those be shared? It's funny, I was looking at the brochure just the other day and yeah, Sting offered the ability for you to come and sing and create an, a record with Sting. Wow. Boris Becker gave tuition at Wimbledon and then you'd go to Chanel to have a his and hers outfit before going to Centre Court to watch the men's final. Um, there was a very, very famous artist that pledged a remarkable piece of art that went for an incredible amount of money. Henry Wyndham conducted the auction and we were very lucky. There was um, friends of Guy who were so supportive and it was quite, over the years, I've done quite a few of these stupid games called Heads and Tails. Yeah. And it was a very unusual marquee on that day where it was like the African style marquee where the lighting internally was incredibly difficult to see who was in the building because of the differential between dark and light. And um, as you do, when someone's tossing the coin, some people sit down and some people play standing. Anyway, we got to the last four individuals that were invited up the front and it was three young ladies and David Beckham. And the prize was a morning for four individuals at the Royal Berkshire Junior School. And I proposed that why didn't all four of them come together, which three girls thought was a brilliant idea. Uh, <laughs> David seemed rather circumspect about it, but uh, I think it's probably the, uh, well, he did get a little bit embarrassed, I think, about it. But that was a remarkable event. And Julia's House, which is a children's yeah. hospice in Dorset, was the beneficiary. And I am delighted that we're still helping Julia's House year on year. And I have a rule I never, ever drink on any charity shoots, any corporate days, nothing. But that day when it ended, I did have a drink in the grounds of Ashcombe. And it was a very, very special day. Great day. Yeah, Amazing. It, yeah it must must be so fun to be a part of those the whole time because the atmosphere is kind of like nothing else. Everyone knows that obviously you're having a great time, but it's all for such a good cause. And when some of those large sums coming in, it means such a huge mm-hmm. amount. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the shooting community is quite incredibly generous. Yeah. It is remarkable. And and they are also very generous to within our sector. You know, we held the BGA shoot recently and Lord Botham and Anna Lamb came along, as indeed you both did. So to raise £100,000 on a day in a field in Berkshire demonstrates to the executive, the guys running the BGA, the support they've got, that that will make a meaningful difference. So, and you know, the Game Conservancy, Basque, they've all been beneficiaries of charity shoots over the years. Yeah. yeah. So... so- Charity shoots is a bit we've never tried to quantify, but actually using the census, we 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 spent a couple of years trying to quantify how much is raised in sweepstakes because it's quite a big figure that we don't really ever talk yeah, about. Yeah, and the white pheasants and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So we we did some analysis on that over hundreds and hundreds of shoots, uh, and we got to just over seven million quid annually being raised through that method, which is a huge amount of money. But if you if you replicated that with what Rob is doing at Churchill's and what the guys exactly. are doing at Hollands and West London and uh, Honisbury, you know, the amount being raised is colossal. And it's being done with a smile. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly. strong arm tactics at all. But the, going back to organising the shooting school, you know, I always wanted with our instructors, the main criteria was they were countrymen or countrywomen. They had to understand the countryside. And um, there's a difference between between being able to shoot well and teach well. And some people can do both. Um, And therefore, we had a great team of guys teaching and still do. And they're journeymen. You know, you've got uh, Nigel and Robert and Gordon. They've been there for many, many years. And uh, so the the depth of experience uh, 
of the shooting school is colossal now. And so going back to the to the conversation we were having earlier about people's, um, shall we say, inability to, to, to judge their own ability, what are the common mistakes that people are making that you, you correct, you know, all the time? It's remarkable how many people shoot with an eye shut when they don't need to. Really? So the analogy is, do you drive your car with an eye shut? Probably not. Do you play tennis, golf, squash with an eye shut? And some people have to. There's no question about it. Their dominant eye is on their left and they want to shoot off the right shoulder. But the ability to shoot with both eyes open, unquestionably, I think, makes people shoot more and they enjoy it more because they can see the whole picture. It's fascinating how some people get fixated about their gun and what it is and whether it's the right choke. And I always (laughs) use the analogy of someone like George Digweed, who, when you get as good as George, and he's still using a fixed choke gun, then let's talk about changing chokes. When George can shoot what he does with a fixed choke, I think that probably tells a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's understanding and gun fit and understanding how to mount the gun in the first place. You know, some people go for a gun fit and they don't even know how to mount the gun properly. Very interesting. Yeah. Expensive mistake, that. <laughs> it is. So we mentioned the, the, the day that we had uh, up there with the BGA. And I think, Chris, you'll agree that we had a good time. We had fun, didn't we? Yeah, we had a great laugh, yeah. But something that Chris and I have talked about a bit in the past is, you know, you're, I think you're quite clear that, that you know, talking about the, the coaches being countrymen or countrywomen, that it is a game shooting school rather than a clay shooting school as such. So I feel slightly less bad about asking this question now, which is Chris and I reckon that clay shooting in and of itself isn't all that much fun when compared to game shooting. Look, I think is going down a dry ski slope in Bracknell as enjoyable as going to Courchevel? Of course it's not. However, I think that, um, and we still do use a tremendous amount of manual traps. I think a lot of people who've had the pleasure of shooting the J&B grouse stand at Royal Berkshire I had a gentleman who literally, when he would walk into it and I'd stand behind him, he would shake with excitement. He got so buzzed up by this sequence of 30 clays. Ah, that's slightly different, isn't it? Because that I think when you when you when when George says clay shooting isn't that fun, that grouse butt at Royal Berkshire is is I wouldn't say that's normal clay shooting. That's sim game. Yeah, uh, no, I disagree. <laughs> I would say it replicates a drive that you'll experience in October on the grouse. And you need to learn how to handle that. And part of learning how to shoot is understanding that you can control your enthusiasm when all around you are buzzing. Uh, I can remember many years ago when you talked earlier about um, Woody being so generous, giving his friend the ability to shoot on a day. Well, I've been fortunate all my life to have shooting for my father. So I was very fortunate to have a very good friend who's the shy retiring Peter Schwer. Um, And he arranged for us to go to Wemmergill and um, on this one particular drive where David Nickerson was shooting next to us, the head keeper came down off the hill and he used to be one of my students at Sparshall. And he said, you'll never see anything like that again, sir. And that was a covey he reckoned of 10,000 grouse that just came through. And it was one of the, almost the freaks of nature where you see the wildebeest crossing the rivers in Africa. Yeah. These grouse started picking each other up as they were coming across the moor. And it was just remarkable. Like how you keep your cool. Like most people get excited when they see a covey of six. 
when you've got 10,000 coming at you, that's quite challenging. David Nicholson was a past master at it. But I think going back to the grouse but the Royal Berkshire, it's teaching you how to keep your cool, yeah. how to be able mm. to move your footwork for birds that are going to your left or your right. That is part of the teaching process that I think we extended what was perceived as clay pigeon shooting, one rabbit, one teal, whatever, into being, we'll take you as close to the real thing. Hence, we then created the Rewild Clay Company, which the strap line was everything but the feathers. Yeah. And when, yeah. you can hear cl- when you can hear clay pigeons going over your head, that's how fast they're going. You actually hear them. I would dispute that some people they're slow- say they're slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 come, so come back away from Royal Berkshire to like a really average clay setup where you stand in some shoddy old thing where you're going to ding your barrels and you're scared of it. And you know, I can't imagine you going to anywhere like that, Chris. Oh, I've been to loads of them. <laughs> you know them all too well, right? And you stand there and you shoot 10 targets of the same thing, which is not that difficult. And everyone before you waits till it's nearly on the ground to, to shoot it to get the maximum score and then move on to the next stand to mark their card, right? That's what George is referring to when he's saying <laughs> it's not that exciting. Yes, but then again, I would say I would have been devastated if anybody ever came to Royal Berkshire just to shoot clay pigeons. It was more of an experiential thing to, yeah. you know, a great welcome, a great lodge, great instructors that love a chat. You could fire 100 cartridges in about four minutes if you wanted to. You're there for an hour. So when I read the other day the competition in Italy, it was taking five hours to shoot 50 clays. Oh, my God. Goodness Whereas me. you could shoot the J&B grouse butt up and back 60 clays in about three minutes, which would get your blood going. <laughs> it's horses for courses. How would you make it more exciting? Parallel universe, no, like things don't, this, none of this is true. None of this is serious. I've definitely, there's ways of making that, that, that clay shooting you just talked about more exciting. It's the discipline of you've got, 50 or 100 targets and you have to i can remember and i i use him because he is iconic george used to say you could take somebody off the street with ten thousand cartridges and with a good instructor you could get them into what i would call the disciplines of skeet down the line or whatever within two three years to be a sporting shot you need inherent skill so therefore the individual that's shooting sporting clays feels the challenge and it's exciting for him there already it's just the it's just what rocks his boat. It may not suit you two guys, and you'd like to go on a simulated day with ten thousand clays and five drives, and you're driving <laughs> around the state. That's your bag. No, no, I, I I like a bit of everything. I was just intrigued as to what you might think when you started analysing how you could make that form of clay shooting better. Is better the word? If it's a discipline, it's a discipline. I think that there is no question that sometimes I worry that if we're trying to make the sport aspirational, some of the facilities would be questionable when someone comes in having played golf and then says, I think I'll take up shooting. Mm. And then they come to a shooting ground and say, is this it? Well, it's funny you should mention golf because one of the ideas that Chris and I have kicked around is the idea of a proper handicapping system. So you then have each clay ground has its sort of par score. There is sort of this out there in a way, but I just think it could be better. <laughs> yeah, so you then turn up with your mate and, you know, Chris, is he's said he's a good shot, so his his handicap might be, for the sake of argument, 20. But I've said I'm a... Well, no, sorry, let's, you're a good shot, so we'll say 10. And I'm average, so my handicap might be 
20 and then we can have like a fair match between us. But the, pro- the problem with that is that you end up with ostensibly every shooting ground not changing their layouts at all because you could, you know, with, with golf, you move the hole two or three yards on a very similar green. But in shooting, you're looking to, you know, we used, Robert Cross used to change the shooting ground as much as he could every month yeah, yeah. because we yeah, had yeah. people coming twice a week. And the problem is the the parameters that set you all. So we created the Handicap Classic on the same premise of what you did, where we had a par of 94. And whether you'd shot 300, I think it was 500 targets CPSA registered, or we created a par. And that event's been going for, God, I think nearly 20 years. And we've had people, we, I remember one gentleman, I think he was in his early 80s, and he'd never won anything in his life in shooting. But he won the Handicap Classic, and David Stapley presented him with a Browning gun because the handicap system worked. Oh, brilliant. But it was specific to the ground yeah. that enabled us to know what the targets were. I think to roll it out throughout the UK with so many variations on target presentation could be challenging. The only thing is that golf is very varied as well. Like you can have a handicap from one course uh, like your local golf club, which is really quite average. And that handicap still applies. But then again, that, that's what the CPSA have got with their A, AAA, and they've got that already. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to be keen and develop that. I've got loads of other ideas about how, how to make clay shooting more exciting, but we'll save them another time. <laughs> but f- <laughs> first of all, I think you should get more points for shooting it earlier. I can't stand any of this waiting till it's nearly dead. Yes, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be like the moment it's out the trap you get like extra points i look forward to taking you around the royal berkshire next spring for the handicap classic and we'll see what your handicap is gentlemen <laughs> i think we should probably do that i'm not talking about being any good at it i'm just saying it's more fun yeah well, we can try that we'll try it and see how it compares that'd be fun i'm definitely up for that so thinking about royal berkshire in a different on the different side on the agency side coming back to the game you must have been to some mega places over the years because of that, right? Yeah. Gordon Robinson, who many people know, he, I think, would rank as one of the best sporting agents in the UK. He's one of the most honourable guys you meet. And his motto was, and mine, we will only sell to people we like and we'll only buy from people we trust. And that seems to have kept us in good stead. And some of the places that we've shot, not only in the UK, but in Spain and Morocco and even in America have been incredible. Yeah, Spain is a, a big favourite. Carlos Rua, who's been a friend for 40 years. I met Carlos before any way before I went to the Royal Berkshire. And uh, he's an incredible guy. Um, he is, I think, one of the best shoot hosts in the world. Really? Interesting. He's a, a great guy. Great guy. I've got to say, Spain, I've said it before on the podcast, Spain is so high up my list. Of places I want to go to shoot. I just think it'd be a, a wonderful experience. Do they do it better than the Brits or just different? Well, when you're having tapas after every drive, when you're having lunch looking at over the Mediterranean, if you're shooting in Mallorca, when you have no worries about rushing the day, because you're only going when the plane goes, and therefore you can relax. It's a holiday and shooting. And there's no question that there are many operators in Spain now understanding that you know, people want three, four hundred bird days of great sport over four drives. Historically, there has been issues with regards to bigger days, but I think that there's now an acceptance that the British market uh, are looking for smaller days and great fun. I can remember going out to Carlos years ago, and 
we went to his family estate at Alcubilis, which was uh, in the heart of La Mancha. And um, we had been out rough shooting the first day. We were doing driven parties the second day. And we'd had the biggest paella in the world. His mother had cooked it. And we were all sitting in the chairs. And then he said, right, we're going. We're going out. And I thought, what are you talking about? Anyway, and it was my father that was with me. And outside there were two Land Rovers and there were bucket seats welded to the front bumper. He said, jump on. <laughs> so we jumped into these bucket seats with our guns and we drive out into the middle of La Mancha and we stopped. And Carlos said, walk into these angles here. And he said, I'm going to come in from the right-hand side. And he picked up a pebble and he threw the pebble into the artesian well and about 200 pigeons came out like bubbles out of a champagne cork. Oh, my God. And it, then we had to run back to the Land Rover, jump on the seats and go to another one. And we were out there for two hours doing this, the most exciting rallying and pigeon shooting. And it was incredible fun. Nothing like anyone would think that you do in Spain. But uh, it, that was really exciting. But, you know, we were very lucky to get involved with helping Los Baracas, which is the shoot in Mallorca set up. And... Many, many, many British parties now go there and with the shoot lodge now being created just outside Palma near Port Andrax, it's a great location to go and have a holiday and shoot. Amazing. So on that note then, Dylan, the way we like to, to round these podcasts off is to ask our guests to describe their final ever shooting experience. Money's no object. Logistics don't matter. You've got one last hurrah with your shotgun. Well, it doesn't have to be a shotgun, does it? It could be a rifle or fishing rod or whatever. But where are you going? What are you doing? Who are you taking with you? The world's your oyster. Okay. Part of it would be a repeat. <laughs> but uh, you and Webster invited me to shoot on a remarkable grouse moor up in Donside called Eden Glassy. And I was fortunate enough that Alex, my wife, and Jazzy, my daughter, was with me. So that as a venue, it is stunningly beautiful. It took us 40 minutes to get back to the shoot lodge, which was also in the middle of nowhere. Um, it is so remote. And what I would quite like is that we wouldn't go there and do driven grouse. We would go out and we would be doing walked up grouse over pointers. Nice. Because I think it's pure, pure sport. I have got a list. I'd end up with about 300 people joining me uh, if I listed all the friends that I'd like to join us. Obviously, Jazzy... And Alex would be responsible for bringing many, many miniatures of Gruet Laddie. That would be their <laughs> job on the day. And then probably poignantly, we all still miss people. But I think for me then to have one final duck flight with my old man, that would be quite cool. Lovely. Yeah. And and again, though, they all these often fall into a category of they, they're very possible or they've already happened, very real. But that's just what's so good about the days that we've already had, they they often can't get any better. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. And that's why, as I said at the very beginning, I have been extraordinarily lucky in everything I've done in my whole working career, from working on a farm painting gates for £10 a week. That was my first job <laughs> with a great farmer called Evan Jones, who's sadly, again, no longer with us. But, um, yeah, I've just been a lucky guy. Through to the 10,000 brace covey at Wemmergill. Yeah, we were on the outside. We didn't get any come over us. I, I'd, I'd put my gun down even if I was in the middle. And I just stare. <laughs> it was a spectacle of nature, Chris. It was stunning to watch. I'd imagine you probably want to lie down on the floor and put your hands over your head. <laughs> like you're being under attack. It was amazing. 
Amazing, yeah, right? unbelievable. Very good. Well, Dylan, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been really good fun. It's so nice to have a to be back doing the podcast, and it's been great to have you as our first guest of the series. It's a pleasure, and thank you very much indeed. Honoured to follow in the footsteps of so many esteemed individuals in our sector. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's really good of you, Dylan. We look forward to seeing you at the game fair, and we're going to try as hard as we can to keep you on Saturday evening. That's very kind. Surely good. Thank you both, gentlemen. Cheers. Right. So before we go, as per usual, there's one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by getting in touch to let us know where you've been listening or by sending us your unpopular opinions or your shooting heroes or any number of any things that we've said over the course of the last 40 whatever it is episodes. Uh, you can also get your hands on a pair of tickets for the party at the game fair by sending us an email explaining why you think you deserve them. And if you're coming to that, you may as well come to the live podcast recording as well. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. If we use what you sent, you'll get your garters. And if we like what you say about the party, we'll send you some tickets. We will be back in a couple of weeks time with hopefully, if it doesn't all go horribly wrong, the live podcast <laughs> until then thanks very much for listening and goodbye <laughs>